Job chapter 12, we're going to read at least some of the verses. Then Job answered and said, no doubt you are the people and wisdom will die with you. But I have understanding as well as you. I'm not inferior to you. Indeed, who does not know such things as these? I am one mocked by his friends who called on God and he answered him. The just and blameless who is ridiculed. A lamp is despised in the thought of one who is at ease. It is made ready for those whose feet slip. The tents of robbers prosper. And those who provoke God are secure. In what God provides by his hand. But now ask the beasts and they'll teach you. And the birds of the air. And they will tell you or speak to the earth. And it will teach you. And the fish of the sea will explain it to you. Who among all these does not know. That the hand of the Lord has done this. In whose hand is the life of every living thing. And the breath of all mankind. Does not the ear test words. And the mouth tastes its food. Wisdom is with aged men. And with length of days. Understanding. We'll pause. Again, we find ourselves a week before Christmas in the book of Job. Job, remember, is a man in pain. He is a man who has experienced unbelievable difficulties. The loss of everything that he owns, the loss of his beloved children, the loss of his health. He finds himself on a trash heap. A group of men have come to offer him comfort, but they wind up offering him something less than comfort. In many ways, pain. In an earlier chapter, Job has longed for a mediator. Someone who can be in heaven and at the same time be on earth. Someone who could place their hand on the shoulder of God and place their hand on the shoulder of Job. And who could create some way in which he could communicate his sorrow. Zophar has rebuked Job and reminded Job that God is beyond understanding and comprehension. And like Bildad and Eliphaz, Zophar urges Job to, hey, there's got to be something wrong with you. So confess your sin and renounce your innocence. And in the place of pain and despair, Job will still have at least a little bit of sarcasm left inside of his veins. Job will accuse Zophar of being a know-it-all in verses 1 and 2. Remember in, in chapter 11, verse 7, Zophar said, Can you fathom the mystery of God or attain to the limits of the Almighty? And of course, the short answer is no. When anyone ever asks the question, Can you know everything about God? What's the right answer? No, but there's another important question that has to be asked, and that is, can you know anything about God? And of course, in Deuteronomy chapter 29, 29, some of you are familiar with the passage. It says, 
There are some things that the Lord our God has kept secret. One translation says, the secret things belong to the Lord. But he has revealed his law and we are and our descendants are to obey it forever. In other words, the secret things belong to the Lord. But there are certain things that God has revealed that we can know, that we can understand and that we can obey. Job appeals to the fact that even animals are aware that God will sometimes allow evil and scoff at what is good in verses 3 through 12. Job will remind his critics that he's aware, aware there is an omniscient God. That means he knows everything. There's an omnipotent God. That means he's all powerful in verses 13 through 25. And remember the book's theme. Remember what this book is about. How are the righteous to bear up? Under pressure. How do you go forward? Not when things are good, but when things are difficult. How do you go forward in pain and in sorrow and in difficulty and in suffering? And most people want to know the whys of suffering. Why is this happening? Why has that happened? And few are ready or willing or able to go forward with the hows of suffering. It's easy to ask why. But you know, I've discovered something. That knowing the real reason, the real answer to whatever real question of why, it doesn't change how you feel and it doesn't always change the suffering. And so we're reluctant to ask how. How can I go forward when there's been a diagnosis of cancer? How can I go forward even though my husband or my wife has left me? How can I go forward if I'm unemployed? How can I go forward if there's been great difficulty or pain or disaster? And remember, Job's friends are the voices of those who are trying to make sense of the world. Eliphaz is the person who speaks from a kind of subjective, mystical, spiritual experience. Bildad appeals to tradition, wise sayings, ancient wisdom. Zophar is that young, dogmatic, fundamentalist, not in the good sense of the word, in the bad sense of the word. People say, well, are you a fundamentalist? And I usually will say, what do you mean by that? If you mean, do I really believe what the Bible says is true? My answer is yes. If, If you're asking me, do you believe that there's a real God and that he sent a real Savior, his son Jesus, into the world, that he died on a Roman cross and that he rose from the dead and he can change people's lives, if that's a fundamentalist, then yes, that's what I am. Each will argue with Job. Each receive a response from Job. All of Job's friends are convinced that God blesses the righteous and chastens or punishes the wicked. And they all ask Job to submit to God and trust God. The book of Job is sometimes frustrating. For the person who wants a pat answer to all of life's painful questions, or who wants a quick, commendable answer to the question, well, explain to me why people suffer. Explain to me why there are accidents. Explain to me how a person 
can be hurt so bad. Explain to me how a person can go into a school and shoot up the place. Explain to me the difficult, problematic issues that we face in life. And in the next several chapters, Job will make several assertions. Some of those assertions include that he loves the Lord, that he trusts him. In the next chapter, Job will cling to the fact that he really does trust and hope in the Lord. In the 14th chapter, Job reveals his great hope that one day, that even though it looks like the only thing that he has to look forward to is being dead, he is going to present the idea that he could come back to life, that he could live again. Where every injustice becomes just. And all of life's pains and problems and the difficult questions that we have will be resolved. And so in verses 1 and 2 I begin with nobody likes a know-it-all. Look what it says. Then Job answers and says no doubt you are the people and wisdom will die with you. It's, It's sarcasm. He's basically saying... It must be tough to know all of the answers. It must be tough when everybody else is in the dark and you are in the light. And of course he's being sarcastic. Arrogance and conceit are attributes that are universally despised. Very seldom do we like a know-it-all. We, we hate people who say that they know it all. Few things are more unattractive than intellectual conceit. And Job's friends claim that they know a lot about God. By the way, do they know a lot about God? Yeah, they do. Usually the world consists of people who claim to know a lot about God. And others who, quite frankly, don't claim to know a lot about God. Job's comments... Drip with sarcasm. Job's friends are the ones with a monopoly on wisdom. And so, of course, when they die, so does wisdom. And so there's Job. Imagine him. Picture him. In the text, he's on a garbage heap. But he could easily be in a hospital bed, couldn't he? With tubes coming out of his head. He could easily be wrapped with gauze. He could easily be in a third world country. He could easily be in the Kybera slum of Kenya. He could easily be with any number of Syrian refugees who are trying to make their way to some sort of safety and freedom. Job refutes that know-it-all arrogance and conceit. And Zophar has accused Job, remember, of being an empty-headed donkey. And so Job answers by reminding him that even dumb animals and the mindless earth know that God is the source of life and breath in verses 9 and 10. Creation knows the truth about God in verse 11. Wisdom and understanding belong to men who have grown old with age and experience in verse 12. David L. McKenna writes, quote, Mocking the narrow and negative view of God that his friends have invoked upon him, Job recites, 
highlights one-sided facts from the history of nature in verses 14 and 15. Men in verses 16 through 22. Nations in verses 23 through 25. In each case, Job demonstrates his knowledge of God's power and prudence, equaling if not surpassing his friends by poetic images and factual overkill. Coming full cycle, he'll rest his case by repeating his contention Turn to chapter 13 real quick in verse 2. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you. Few things are more difficult for me. When the unbelieving skeptic or the unbelieving critic or the atheist or the agnostic paints Christians with this broad brush of being stupid idiots. Oh, you're a Christian? Excuse me for laughing. Oh, you're a Christian? You believe that the Bible is true? You believe in talking snakes and fairy tales? You see, there's a big unbelieving world out there that mocks Christians and Christianity And they think it has something to do with your intelligence. I know that before I became a Christian, that's exactly what I thought. Josh McDowell said, I thought all Christians had half of a brain, or at least two brains, and one of them was lost, and the missing brain was constantly being looked for. I read, and you probably read, a note. I heard it on the news just a couple of days ago. Senator Tom Coburn released the 2013 edition of the annual Waste Book on Capitol Hill Tuesday, and it's filled with enraging examples of federal spending. Greta Van Susteren wants to know why the federal government thought it was necessary to fork out $400,000 to do a study on the cognitive abilities of Tea Party members. (laughs) The surprising conclusion of the study showed that Tea Party members have a better scientific comprehension than non-Tea Party members. This is what the author writes. Wow. Who could have guessed that people who tend to be pro-life, pro-family, pro-oil, hunting, fishing, meat-eating, global warming skeptics would have a better scientific comprehension than liberals? He writes, but to be fair, I'm sure libs leave us in the dust. When it comes to (laughs) self-esteem. This is all so very interesting. Because people really do. View Christians. As being intellectually challenged. Cerebrally. Deficient. And look what Job says. In verse 3, sources of information. But I have understanding as well as you. I'm not inferior to you. Indeed, who does not know such things as these? Remember what he's doing. He's responding to the comments that Zophar has made in chapter 11. And even in pain, Job says, look, 
I still can think and I can still reason. He's not inferior in wisdom or understanding when it comes to the knowledge of God. Remember what's happening here. Remember what's being said. All the people, all of the principles, Bildad, Eliphaz, Sophar, do they all believe in God? Yes, they do. Do they have a fairly good sense of what kind of a God is God? Is he almighty? Is he all-knowing? Is is he all-powerful? Apparently, that's the case. The so-called wisdom arguments in Job's friends' embrace were common knowledge even in Job's day. And so when a person comes to me and they talk about The ontological argument or the reason for the existence of God from being. Where they talk about the teleological argument for God. The understanding that that there's a God based on the reality of, of purpose and design. People will try to often show off their big knowledge of philosophical or theological things. But all the while, they're not interested in the most important thing. And that is the reality of a heart that's broken and in pain and in need of having a right relationship with God. Job claims to know everything that his critics know. And one thing else that they apparently don't know. And that's the compassion and the sensitivity that comes when you meet people in pain. Remember, Job had everything. Life was good. But Job now understands what it means to suffer. He understands what it's like to be neglected. He knows about handicaps and disabilities. And for those of you who are even somewhat familiar with handicaps or disabilities, for instance, our veterans who are coming home from the battlefield and you'll notice that, they, that they're missing an arm or they're missing a leg and pretty soon you begin to sometimes treat them that they're missing something else. That with the loss of a limb or the loss of a leg comes the loss of intelligence or the loss of usefulness and you know that that's not true I read from one particular sermon source quote nothing they had said had been profound or wise or even original everyone knew it and that's the way it is for many of you People will come to you, they'll argue about God, they'll argue about the Bible, they'll argue about the nature of God, they'll argue about the existence of God, they'll argue about the meaning of life, and they'll present with to you all of these things that have been said over and over and over again like they're going to catch you in your idiotic belief system. Like they'll say, okay, if the Bible's true and, and Adam and Eve had Cain and Abel, well... And then Cain kills his brother Abel. Well, where in the world did he get his wife? And it it betrays the reality that they haven't really read the Bible. And they don't understand the Bible. Particularly when I'll say something like, well, he found her on eHarmony.com. 
See, sometimes you have, to, you have to say something that is going to get them to rethink even their own argument. And you go, hey, that's a great question. And that's an interesting question. And hey, let's just think about it for just a second. It says in Genesis chapter 5, in verse 4, after he begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years. And he had sons, plural, and daughters, plural, so that all the days that Adam lived were 930 years. And he died. And I... And I'll say something like, look, if you lived five or six hundred years and you were able to have three or four hundred viable pregnancies. See, I know you're laughing. You're going, man, that's a lot of children. <laughs> you can have a lot of children rather quickly. And then they'll get all disgusted and they'll go, you mean they had to have relations with a close relative? And I'll say, yeah, that's exactly what had to happen, that they had to have relations with close relatives. And they'll say, well, isn't that forbidden in the Bible? And I'll have to say, yeah, the, the prohibitions against incest aren't given until the giving of the law. But remember, Abraham marries his half-sister, Sarah. And so for the people who are really interested and answers to important questions. There really are answers. Job says, I am one mocked by his friends who called on God and he answered him. The just and blameless who is ridiculed. Look, look at his self-description. I am one mocked by his friends. Who called on God. He answered him. Listen to what he's saying. He's giving his testimony. He's saying you know what. Who called on God. I've prayed. And God has answered my prayer. I lived in a world where loving the Lord. And and ministering to the Lord. And praying to the Lord. Was all a part of my normal routine. The just and blameless who is ridiculed. Remember I've lived my life. Trying my very best to honor God. And remember God's testimony at the beginning of the book. That there's no one like him. Job describes himself as the object of scorn and ridicule. Ask anyone about their beliefs in God. Ask anyone about what they think about God. They're usually going to have an answer for you. They either believe in him or they don't. And if you ask them the question, what kind of a God do you think that God is? They'll list his attributes. Job acknowledges that God is the one who answers his prayers And again, anyone can say that God is wise and powerful. And all of his friends have said that, haven't they? But Job is asking another question. How do you explain a person who devotes himself or herself to honoring and loving and serving and ministering to the Lord and all of a sudden their world falls apart? It's a little bit more difficult question, isn't it? It's a little bit more difficult when when you try to do what's right and you've even hopefully done what is right and you find yourself in a downward spiral. Who is just and blameless? God says Job is in verses one chapters one and two. But what if I suggested to you? That the Bible speaks of another, not just an individual, but a group of people who are just and blameless in his sight. Would you want to know about it? 
especially if it was you? Remember, we've been talking about that. Job really is just and blameless. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. And if you don't know where that is, just go past the Gospels, past Romans. And when you get to, remember, giants eat peas and corn, Galatians, Ephesians, and there you are in Colossians, big as life. And in Colossians chapter 1, look what it says. In the body of his flesh, speaking of Jesus. Well, I'll begin in verse 21. And you, that's you. That's the Gentiles and Jews and Gentiles who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. This is a really good description of me. Alienated, enemies in my mind by wicked works. Yet now he, that is Jesus, has reconciled. Look, in the body of his flesh through death, Jesus dies He dies on the cross, a real death, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. I need you to just sort of let that soak in for just a minute. In the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. In your husband's eyes, in your wife's eyes, in your neighbor's eye, in your church member's eye, in the person sitting next to you, in the person who grew up with you. Because if, if someone said, are you holy, blameless, and above reproach in your own sight? Have you ever looked in the mirror and, and, and holy, blameless, and above reproach? Are these the first words that come to your mind? But then Paul writes that you're Holy. And blameless. And above reproach. It says in verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith grounded and steadfast. And are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard. Which was preached to every creature under under heaven. Which I, Paul, became a minister. This is why this becomes important for each and every one of you. Because there may come a time when you have to explain to someone. Well, if you're a Christian, then how do you explain all of the miserable things going on in your life? And you need to be able to say, I may not have all of life's answers, but I know that in Christ, I'm wholly blameless and above reproach. I know That when God looks at me and he sees me in Jesus. Then there's got to be some sort of explanation even if I don't know the answer. It says in verse 5. A lamp is despised in the thought of one who is at ease. It is made ready for those whose feet slip. This might be a little difficult for you to understand. Let's try a different translation. The TEV. It says you have no troubles. And yet you make fun of me. You hit a man who is about to fall. I think that what, verse 5, a lamp is despised in the thought of one who is at ease. That means a light is despised at one who 
thinks that they don't need light. It is made ready for those whose feet slip. Another way of thinking about this passage, it would be something like this. It's easy for you, living in your comfortable world, to mock me. That's what Job is saying. It's easy sometimes for people who aren't living in the pain, who aren't living in the sorrow, who aren't living in the darkness to come up with all kinds of reasons why it's happening. I don't know if you guys are familiar, but there's a repulsive game being played among certain, certain wicked people. It's called um, the knockout game. Have some of you heard about it on the news? I, this was in USA Today. It says, perpetrators have dubbed the violent practice as the knockout game in which young people try to randomly knock out strangers with one punch. Now think about it. It says, quote, recent attacks in New York City, New Haven, Connecticut, Washington, D.C., and suburban Philadelphia have raised concerns across the country. Apparently there's a group of people who are playing some sick twisted game and the, the twi- sick twisted game is that they come up on people who are maybe alone maybe vulnerable and they try to knock them down with one punch it says quote the violence is not new though in 2011 st louis had a rash of similar incidents one of which led to the death of a vietnamese immigrant some of the assaults are recorded and posted on social media by the attackers can you imagine think about this in what world is it okay to find someone alone and vulnerable and try to knock them out with one punch This becomes a a type and a picture, if you will, of what's going on for Job as his friends are trying to verbally knock him down as they think about his situation. Look at verse 6. It says, the tents of robbers prosper and those who provoke God are secure in what God provides by his hand. It's his way of, we could read this to say, who bring their God in their hand. In the the Hebrew language, it says, who bring their God in their hand. The idea being, the God of robbers is the weapon in their hand. In other words, the tents of robbers prosper. Why? Because they seem to be getting away with wickedness. In other words, Job is questioning the assertion. He's saying, look, you live in a world where you theologically say, Righteous people are rewarded. Wicked people are punished. But that doesn't really make sense to me. Because the real world doesn't seem to reflect that. And so Job says, you've accused me of being an empty-minded donkey. Verse 7, but now ask the beasts and they will teach you. And the birds of the air and they will tell you. In other words, Job says, hey. Let's look at nature. Ask the beasts and they will teach you. And the birds of the air and they will tell you. Does zoology and biology and the animal kingdom have something to say about reality? And in reality, in the reality of the world in which we live, do sometimes shark eat lesser life forms? 
Do dogs terrorize cats? Do cats terrorize rats? Do rats, who, who do rats humiliate? Yeah. <laughs> Elephants, people. It's Job's way of saying, if we study nature, it'll tell us something. I read something interesting. Chimps in Tanzania were seen swallowing the unthawed leaves of a tree that they normally avoided. Intrigued by what the primates would eat, why they would eat these particular leaves without chewing them, biologists studied the chimp droppings and found that the leaves were not digested. The chimp's digestive system simply removed chemicals from the surface of the leaves, and those substances killed parasites within the chip's intestinal tract. How do they know that? How does the chimp know to eat this and that his body won't digest it, and yet it will keep him from infection? Another interesting insight comes from the Brazilian woolly spider monkey. I read, the female monkey does not ovulate for about six months after she gives birth so that she has time to raise her baby before becoming pregnant again. After six months, however, the female will travel outside of her territory to gorge on the fruit of a specific tree. Biologists found that this fruit is rich in the exact chemical needed to initiate ovulation in the monkey. Now, and and think about the oldest book in the Bible says, look at the beasts. Look at the birds. Look at what they have to say. Or speak to the earth in verse 8. And it will teach you. Rocks have something to say? Have you ever picked up a rock and go, speak to me. Tell me your secrets. But anyone who's had an introductory course to, uh, to geology knows that there are igneous and metamorphic and sedimentary rocks. See, this is what happens when you live in my world. You grow up in the Mojave Desert and all you have to look at are rocks. And so you try to find something interesting and exciting about these rocks. And all of a sudden they do begin to speak to you about heat, about compression, about transformation, about the movement of the earth itself. So he talks about zoology, he talks about geology, he talks about marine biology. Speak to the earth, it will teach you, and the fish of the sea, they'll explain it to you. I think that this is very interesting. You know, I'm reminded of George Washington Carver, who was asked by Congress how he knew so much about the peanut. Bill Federer writes, On January 21st, 1921, George Washington Carver addressed the United States House Ways and Means Committee on behalf of the United Peanut Growers Association on the use of peanuts to improve southern economy. Initially, he was given 10 minutes to speak, but the committee was so captivated, his time was extended, and he explained how many products derived from the peanut, including milk and mock beef, 
beef and mock chicken. And George Washington Carver stated, quote, if you go to the first chapter of Genesis, we can interpret very clearly, I think, what God intended when he said, behold, I have given you every herb that bears seed. To you, it shall be meat. This is what he means about it. It shall be a source of food or protein. There is everything there to strengthen and nourish and keep the body alive and healthy. And after nearly two hours, the chairman said, Dr. Carver, how did you learn all these things? And George Washington Carver said, from an old book. What book? Asked the chairman. Carver said, the Bible. And the chairman said, You mean the Bible talks about peanuts? No, sir, Dr. Garver replied. It tells us about the God who made the peanut. And I asked him to show me what to do with all that the peanut could do. Now, I want you to think about that for just a moment. Does that sound like an idiot? Remember, George Washington Carver has a deeply held Christian conviction that the Bible is true. And what the Bible says about the earth, the sky, the sun, the moon, the stars can be believed. But George Washington Carver also believed that what the Bible says about life and death and about eternity was also true. And so in verse 9, look what it says. Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind? He describes who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In other words, that there's a real God who orchestrates all of creation in whose hand is the life of every living thing. Job asserts that God is the author, the originator, the giver of life and the breath of human beings. Does not the ear test words and the mouth taste its food? Let me help you. What is Job saying? William MacDonald writes, quote, If Job's critics tested words as carefully as they tasted food, they would agree with the ancients who uniformly agreed with what Job had said. In other words, you listen carefully. It's his way of saying, does your ear test words and the mouth taste its food? For the simple person who sticks something in their mouth, are they usually able to tell if it's a candy cane or a peanut? Are they able to tell if it's a pomegranate or a lemon? You taste things and it tells you something about what you're eating and you hear words and are you willing to evaluate what it's saying? And so in verse 12, wisdom is with the aged men and and with length of days, understanding. It could be one of two things. Either a statement, in other words, he's basically saying to, to Zophar, youngster, When you grow up, you might have something important to say to me. It could be a question. Is wisdom with the aged men and with length of days understanding? It's one of those verses that could go either way. The older you get, do you always get wiser? Not always, especially if you make the same foolish mistakes from a very young age to a very old age. And then he talks about the attributes of God. Listen 
to this beautiful rendition. He says, with him, that is with the living, true God of the Bible, with the true creator of heaven and earth, with him are wisdom and strength. Now, think this through. Remember, in the Bible, wisdom isn't just simply knowing what's right. It's applying what's right and strength. In other words, it's his way of saying, God has the power to do what God wants to accomplish. He has counsel and understanding. Job affirms God's sovereignty, his wisdom, his strength, his his majesty, his ability to impart information and understanding. And so what happens when we consider God's attributes? Again, McDonald mentions how a study of these attributes produce what he calls inexplicable and paradoxical results. It's our way of saying, okay, If God knows everything about everything, and he does, if he knows the beginning from the end, if there is nothing that he learns, if he is the self-existent God who knows the beginning, the middle, and the end, does God know what's going on in Job's life? The answer is yes. In 1 Chronicles 28.9 it says, The Lord searches every mind and understands every plan and thought. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, it says, Nothing is hidden from God. He sees through everything, and we will have to tell him the truth. Augustine wrote, What man is there who can comprehend what that wisdom by which God knows all things In such wise that neither what we call things past are past therein, nor what we call things future are therein looked for as coming, as though they were absent, but both past and future things together with those actually present are all present. In the 4th century AD, Augustine is talking about a self-existent being who exists not so much in time, but outside of time, and that the past and the present and the future are all as if it is is existing right at this very moment. Erwin Lutzer says, before God created the universe, he had you in mind. I like that. Before God creates the universe, he knows your beginning. He knows your middle. He knows your end. He knows every obstacle. He knows every pain. He knows every trial. A.W. Tozier says, God dwells in eternity, but time dwells in God. He has already lived all our tomorrows as he has lived our yesterdays. I love that. Because nothing comes as a surprise to God. Not any pain, not any sorrow, not any tragedy. In verse 14 it says, if he brings a thing down, it cannot be rebuilt. It's Job's way of saying, if if God decides to tear something down, and he never wants it to be useful ever again, will it? If he imprisons a man, there can be no release. If God puts you in jail... Guess what? You're going to jail. He withholds the waters. They dry up. If he sends them out, they overwhelm the earth. It's his way of saying, God's in charge 
of reality. God's in charge of humanity. God's in charge of hydrology. God's in charge of the mechanisms of global warming or global cooling. With him are strength and prudence. They, the deceived and the deceiver are his. It's, again, his way of saying the deceived and the deceiver are his in what way? Does God know that the deceived are deceived? He does. And does God know that the deceiver will not get away with his deception? The answer is yes. Think about what Job is saying. It's Job's way of saying, I've, I've told you that I haven't done anything to deserve this. But you don't believe me. But God knows. Matthew Henry said, Though men are false, God is faithful. In verse 17 it says, He leads counselors away plundered. And makes fools of the judges. In what way does he lead the counselors away plundered? Are there people who give advice? And does anyone know everything? If you've ever been a person who's worked with people. There's going to come a time. When someone asks you a question and you don't know the answer to that question. And it's not helpful to pretend to know something that you really don't know. And so this is Job's way of saying the smartest people who have ever lived or ever will live are bankrupt compared to what God knows. And makes fools of the judges. Usually if you get to be a judge. It means that you have some education and training. And wisdom that gives you the opportunity to make judgments from the bench. And Job is inviting us. In a very real way. To ask the question. What does God want you to know? What are the counsels of God? You see, this is very, very important because according to the Bible, you're made in the image of God. But modern psychology doesn't appreciate or embrace a biblical worldview. Psychology's goal is the understanding of the self and ministry to the self. But remember, it's often a ministry that's apart from God and apart from Christ. And so the Bible invites you to consider the questions of life and reality and circumstances and pain and puzzles in light of a real God who has created the heavens and the earth and who's created you. It says he loosens the bonds of kings. And binds their waist with a belt. It's his way of saying he loosens the bonds of kings. That means the leaders, the movers, the shakers in the world. And, their, and binds their waist with a belt. In other words, he wraps himself around them. The Bible says that, that 
the decision-making processes that God has the ability to turn a person's heart the way that a river goes in one particular direction or another particular direction. If God wants a world leader to do something, does God have the ability to compel that world leader to make it so? The answer is yes. It says, he leads princes away plundered. And overthrows the mighty. He deprives the trusted ones of speech. And takes away the discernment of the elders. These are all people in power. Positions. Responsibility. Princes. Overthrows the mighty. Deprives the trusted ones of speech. Why are they trusted? Because of what they have to say. What if God says, guess what? You have nothing more to say. They'll have nothing more to say. And takes away the discernment of the elders. Remember what discernment is. It's the ability to choose between right and wrong. It's to cut down the middle. It's what, again, Spurgeon says. It's not just the difference between right and wrong. It's the difference between right and almost right. He pours contempt on princes and disarms the mighty. He uncovers deep things out of darkness and brings the shadow of death to light. What does that mean? He uncovers deep things out of darkness. The things that you have no way of knowing, he knows. By the way, does he have the ability to reveal it? Yeah. And does he do exactly that from time to time? Especially when a George Washington Carver says, Heavenly Father, teach me about the peanut. And God awakens in his heart and in his mind this incomprehensible ability to do things that are unimaginable. In Isaiah 45, 15, it says, Truly, you are a God who hides himself, O God, and Savior of Israel. In other words, can God hide himself in such a way that he will never be found? If God doesn't want you to find him, Are you going to be able to find him? This begs yet another question. Does that seem to be the God of the Bible? Does the God of the Bible seem to be a God on the run, hiding, denying, depriving, trying to figure out a way to keep people in the dark? I'm going to pause for a moment and remind you of something. Does God actually allow certain people to remain in the dark? Apparently. Now, William Gurnall, who wrote The Christian in Complete Armor, said, the Christian must trust in a withdrawing God. You see, this is one of the key thoughts of Christian maturity. You see, the older that you become in Christ, there's going to come a time when you experience the love, the presence, the joy. You, you can, his presence is almost palpable. But then all of a sudden he withdraws himself. And you go, where are you, God? How come I I don't feel you the way that I used to feel you? How come I I don't sense you the way that that I used to sense you? And remember what the New Testament says. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And hence what William Gurnall says, the Christian must trust in a withdrawing God. Is God God even when you don't sense his presence? 
Is God the same God even when you don't know all of the answers to life's questions? The answer is yes. And so he goes on. He makes nations great and destroys them. He enlarges nations and guides them. In verse 23, it doesn't make sense to a lot of people. Why in the world would God make a nation great just to bring it down? Could God raise up a Babylon for his own purposes? Can he bring it down? Can God raise up a Persia for his purposes and bring it down? Can God raise up a Greek empire and bring it down? Can God raise up a Roman empire and bring it down? Can God raise up Western civilization and the United States of America and Great Britain and build an army of missionaries and send them around the world and bless them and encourage them and empower them. Yeah, he can do that. And can he bring it down when they forsake him and ridicule him and mock him He makes nations great and destroys them. He enlarges nations and guides them. He takes away the understanding of the chiefs of the people of the earth and makes them wander in a pathless wilderness like like now. He takes away the understanding of the chiefs of of, of the people of the earth. Who are the chiefs of the people of the earth? These are the rulers, the shakers, the movers, the shakers. These are the prime ministers and presidents and kings. And how in the world does he take away understanding? Let me be blunt. When a leader rejects God and rejects the revelation of God and rejects the wisdom of God, they are on a path. They are wandering in a pathless wilderness. And then in verse 25, they grope in the dark without light and he makes them stagger like a drunken man. Does that passage sound familiar to you? They grope in the dark without light. You know what it reminded me of? Acts chapter 17. Have you ever read Paul's address to the leaders on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17? In Acts chapter 17, Paul is speaking to a bunch of Greek scholars and they're worshiping. He's he's drawing attention to the unknown God and he says, Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you God who made the world and everything in it since he's the Lord of heaven and earth and he doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. This is Paul's preaching. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. Sounds like Job. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. God has placed each and every person in each and every land and each and every country according to his sovereign will so that, look what it says, so that they should seek the Lord. Note what what Paul writes, so that they should seek the Lord. Well, what about the pygmies in Africa? There are no pygmies in Africa. They're in the South Pacific. Well, what about the people in Africa who have never heard about Jesus? Or what about the people who, who are living in the outskirts of nowhere? Look what it says. So that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him. 
and find him, though he is not far from each and every one of us. Look what Paul is asserting. Is God far away from the people in Africa, far away from the people in Alaska, far away from the people in South America, from the North Pole to the South Pole, and every continent and every country are those people there so that they won't know about God, or they won't know about Jesus, or they won't know about his his majesty, his honor, his splendor. Remember what Paul elsewhere argues. He argues that all of creation bears testimony that there's a creator and that we can know something about that creator. All of our consciences say something about the lawgiver. For the person who can even squeeze out the statement, that's not fair. They have a sense of justice. The moment a person says, that's not fair, there is in their mind and heart a sense of equality and justice and that there must be a just God who reasons and draws conclusions based on equity. Job says, they grope in the dark without light and he makes them stagger like a drunken man. Michael Hollings writes, The basic faith of Christianity is that the hidden God reveals himself in his world and in history in a very particular way. God becomes a man. Jesus is accepted in faith by Christians as divine and human. And now all of a sudden we see at the end of chapter 12, Jesus and the New Testament. Remember in Luke chapter 2, we lived in a world that was darkened by sin. They were groping. They were groping in the darkness without light. And then all of a sudden, a great light appears. This is interesting to me. They grope in the dark without light. Why? Because they love darkness, because their deeds are evil. Imagine the people who say, we don't want God and we don't want Jesus and we don't want Christmas and we don't want this Christmas story. Zophar's question. Go back to chapter 11, verse 7. Read it again. Can you fathom the mystery of God or attain to the limits of the Almighty? What's the simple answer? No. And yet Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 9 says, he's made known to us the mystery of his will. Can you fathom the mystery of God? Paul, Ephesians 1 9, he's made known to, to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and earth together unto one head, even Christ. And in Colossians 1.26, the mystery which has been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of his glory, this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Can you fathom the mystery of God? If by the mystery of God you mean that God has a message and God is going to bring that message and it's going to be a message of hope and it's going to be a message of redemption and it's going to be a message of deliverance, how 
in the world are we to understand the mystery of God, a God who speaks and then refrains from speaking. By the way, when God is silent, is there a reason? Yeah. And when God speaks, is there a reason? Yes. Os Guinness was right when he said, Mystery is beyond human reason, but it is not against human reason. A fully comprehended God is certainly not the God of the Bible. Thomas Akempis said, If the works of God were such as might be easily comprehended by human reason, they wouldn't be called wonderful or unspeakable. The truth is, if you knew everything about God, then he wouldn't be God. He would cease to be God. He would be the clever invention of your imagination. By the way, does the God of the Bible seem to be the invention of a clever person's imagination? That should say something. A.W. Tozer wrote, To the frightened, God is friendly. To the poor in spirit, he's forgiving. To the ignorant, considerate. To the weak, gentle. To the stranger, hospitable. And you could add to the list, by the way. William Tyndale wrote, God's goodness is the root of all goodness. And our goodness, if we have any, springs from his goodness. God is an infinite God. Augustine said, God is an infinite circle whose center is everywhere and whose circumference is nowhere. That doesn't make sense. Of course it doesn't make sense. If it made sense, then you would know way more than you pretend to know. The Puritan preacher Richard Sibbs said, How should finite comprehend infinite? We shall apprehend him, but not comprehend him. The old Puritan preacher said, Your job isn't to understand everything there is to know about God. Your job is to lay hold of everything that's revealed about God and incorporate him, not into your life or into your thinking in a superficial way, but allow him to incorporate you into all of the plans and purposes that he has in mind. You see, God has saved you From sin, as Chet said, for himself. I don't understand everything about God. Exactly. But you can embrace him. Paul spoke of a day in Romans chapter 2 verse 16. He said, the day when according to my gospel... God will judge the secrets of the human hearts through Jesus Christ, unquote. Do you understand what Job is doing? He's crying out for Jesus. He wants Jesus. He wants a person who can lay his hand on the Father and lay his hand on his broken world and make sense 
of it. That is the true meaning of Christmas. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we're so grateful that you've saved us from sin and you've saved us for yourself. Lord, if we're frightened, you're friendly and if we're poor in spirit, you're forgiving And if we're ignorant, Lord, you're considerate. And if we're weak, you're gentle. And if we're a stranger, you're hospitable. And if we're empty, Lord, you are fullness. And if we are weak, you are strong. Heavenly Father, we're beginning to make our way with Job. Daring to ask hard questions and not even for a moment pretending to know all of the answers. But Lord, if we're going to experience true wisdom, Lord, we know that it's the wisdom that's found in Jesus. And if we're going to experience true understanding, Lord, it's the revelation that you've made concerning yourself. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be men and women who long to know you, who are willing to believe what you've said about yourself. Lord, we pray that like the men and women who walked with Jesus on the road to Emmaus, that we would be willing to search the scriptures to see if these things are so. As you begin to reveal the wonderful things of wisdom and glory and honor and majesty, as you speak to us in creation and conscience, and also in revelation, in the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray, we pray, we pray, that, Lord, we would be diligent students, not ashamed, but that, Lord, we would study, and we would show ourselves approved, Men and women who need not be ashamed when people ask us questions about life, about love, about salvation, and about the future. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.